But what we are going to talk about today is this concept of family and what we see in Scripture as family. And when you think of the word family, there's lots of things that can come to your mind, right? You could be thinking about your current family that you have now. You'd be thinking about your childhood. Um, you can define family, uh, a wide range of things, depending on history, family history, how many kids you have, biological family, step family, blended family, lots of different definitions. But the thing that binds any family together is the identity that you have as a unit. And it doesn't matter if your kid is biological, adopted from another family, you're a unit and your identity is one of someone who has all the rights and privileges that come along with being in that family. In Scripture, we see family referenced a lot from the Old Testament through the New Testament and its foundational institution of society that was created by God. It's not some modern construct. It's not some societal construct. It was instituted by God. And as we continue through this series on Romans chapter 8, this next section really fully leans into this idea of what does it mean to be a part of God's family? What does it mean to be considered sons and daughters of our Father in heaven? It's not just a metaphor or an analogy of some way that, you know, we're just using familiar words. There's actual true depths to meaning that we're called the sons and daughters of God. It's so much more than what we take for granted or overlook when sometimes in language and scripture, like I said, can be metaphorical, can be pointing to something out, can be an allegory, can be all these kind of things, but family is not one of those things. When we're called God's family, there is a deeper, important structure that's in place there. So we're going to finish looking at uh, what life in the spirit means and then the implications of being part of God's family. And then we're going to do some historical deep dives because who doesn't like history? That's great. Um, so we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17 today. So I'm going to start by reading it. We'll open in prayer, and then we'll go into our time together. Romans 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Dear God, we pray that as we spend time in this passage today, you show us what Paul was referencing and how he was describing us as sons and daughters of you, Lord God. What does it mean to be heirs and members of your kingdom? I pray you allow us to see the goodness that comes from being with your family, and I pray you let us see the responsibilities that come with that as well. In your name we pray, amen. So we're going to start with verse 12 and 13, which kind of connect more with last week, kind of wrap up that idea. Uh, last week, we talked about how those who follow Jesus are filled with the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit of life, Paul calls it. And um, he calls it the Spirit of life because that is what we receive from him. We receive life from God. Paul reminds us that our life is not controlled by our flesh, right? We are able to overcome that. We're not controlled by the world. We are controlled and reign and rule God rules through us, through his Holy Spirit, because we are saved and the spirit of life lives literally in each and every one of us as believers. 
And Paul again doubles down with this concept that we're not controlled or consumed or ruled by flesh or sin in verses 12 and 13, when he says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, but to live according to, or to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Paul concludes from last week that since Christians, we live in this Spirit, we're no longer captive to the flesh and accordingly should not live life according to this fleshly desire or the worldly desires, meaning our desires, our actions, our deeds, our thoughts, our attitudes, they're not reflective of the world around us, right? They're reflective of Jesus. But then this goes a little bit further, and he says, hey, he's not saying like just, hey, like, hey, you're free from sin, so there it is, rest in that. He looks at this balancing of the work of the Holy Spirit and then our responsibilities in this work. He states that if you live by the flesh or you live by sin, you will die. That's not right. That's not new, right? We know that. We see that um, reflected repeatedly in Scripture. We saw that last week, and we looked closer at that last week. And there's no such thing as universal salvation where just like if you're good enough, you get into heaven, and that's all where it is. It's all Jesus or it's nothing. And if it's nothing, we saw last week, like what happens to those people who there's nothing, right? There is sin and death and a life that results in death. But Paul says more, he says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And the key words that he says there is if by the Spirit you put to death sin. Now what this, this does not mean is that you save yourselves, like we don't save ourselves. Paul's not saying like just work hard enough and you save ourselves, right? We see in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and 9, one of many places where he summarizes, says, for by, the, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So we're not saving ourselves, but if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, whoops, I skipped, sorry. But what Paul is saying here is that both God and us, you and me, have a role in that sanctification. It can only be by the Spirit and His power that we're saved, but we must put to death our own sins. We must take an active role in battling sinful habits. Paul writes to the church in Philippi in the book of Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is by God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's this paradox in scripture we see where God works, but we work. We must be content in knowing God has ordained and provided our salvation while also putting in the work to grow to be more like Christ. Yet that's only possible with the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So you see how this kind of like constant dance and balancing works out here? We have to take an active role of evaluating our lives for sin, confessing our sin, then working to eliminate that sin from our lives while also leaning on Jesus to provide us the strength to be able to do so. Living in the Spirit does not just mean we sit on our laurels, remember the glory of the past, we remember the highlights of our life, those mountaintop moments, and that's all we do. The highs of being baptized or converting or overcoming sinful desires in the past, but it's a constant day-in and day-out work powered by the Holy Spirit to break free from our sinful desires. And it's work to build Christian community, it's work to confess and ask for prayer, it's work to do more than just show up on Sunday morning, it's work that we participate in via the power we have in the Holy Spirit. 
The Christian life is work. It's God who works in us, but our continued obedience is an inherent part of what Paul is saying when he says, work out your salvation. Again, not saying we save ourselves. We're not working to be good enough so that we get into heaven. That's not what he's referencing here. That goes contrary to what Jesus said, but it's the result of God's work working within you and me and having the Holy Spirit live within us. We live around a crooked and twisted generation, right? Talked about this last week, talked about a lot. You just look around the world. There's just fallenness everywhere. And Paul describes the world during his time, it's the same way for us. There's just wickedness and deceitfulness and twistedness around us. But we work with the Spirit in us to put to death our sins so we do not live according to our flesh, but according to the life that God has given us. And with that context, now Paul goes into verse 14 looking at more like, well, what does that mean, this life that God has given us? What does this look like? How does he describe this life to us? And in verse 14, he says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Carrying on his line of thinking from earlier, Paul shows us that we are no longer slaves of sin, but rather God has adopted us into his family. But always when we look at a letter like this, we have to understand that even though this uh, letter applies to us and informs us, it wasn't written directly to us, right? Paul was writing a letter to the church in Rome, to Roman Christians, Gentile Christians, in a context in a specific period of first century history where things and words mean specific things. So we have a context of what adoption looks like, right? In our mindset, what adoption looks like in 21st century America or global culture. Maybe some of us come from adopted families or have family members who've adopted or we've adopted. We have that context, but what does the word adoption mean to the people receiving this letter from Paul? What does it actually look like? So a context here, so Paul was Jewish. We see he references multiple times in scripture. He's the Hebrew of Hebrews, he calls himself. Referencing in part his Pharisee life he had before Christ showed up and saved him. He was a devout Jewish disciple. But the interesting thing that I learned as I looked into this is in Jewish culture in this time period, the idea of adoption the way we think of doesn't exist, right? There was no legal adoption the way we think of legal adoption. In Jewish culture, if the head of the home, the father, the husband died, the brother or the next closest male relative would just kind of take over the family unit and they would just inherit the family unit and that would just become the new family. So think of some of your... uh, brother-in-laws or things like that. Maybe that's a good thing, maybe it's not, but that's just kind of the way it worked in Jewish culture. Good, I got a couple of chuckles, so that's good. <laughs> no one cried, so that's, that's very good. But Paul is talking specifically to Romans, right? These are Gentiles, non-Jewish uh, Christians mostly, in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire during a specific time. So what was their frame of reference for adoption? So I was studying about this. I found a a quote here or a a study from uh, someone named Ellen Maddy, a church historian who talks about what did adoption look like in ancient Rome. And she says, in ancient Rome, adoption had a powerful meaning. When a child was born biologically in Rome, the parents had the option of disowning the child for a variety of reasons. The relationship, therefore, biologically, was not necessarily desired by the parent or permanent. And this was not just could happen at birth, this could happen even years later. A child could just disown, or a parent could disown their child. 
Not so, however, if the child was adopted. In Rome, adopting a child meant, one, the child was freely chosen by the parents and desired by those parents. Number two, the child would be a permanent part of the family. Parents could not disown a child that they adopted. An adopted child received a new identity. Any prior commitments, responsibilities, and debts were erased. New rights and responsibilities were taken on. Also in ancient Rome, the concept of inheritance was part of life, not something that began in death. Being adopted made someone an heir to their father, joint sharers in all their possessions, and fully united to him. So we've talked a lot, and you've heard Ernie and others reference how when we talk about salvation in the Christian life, it's not just a ticket to get out of hell free card, right? It's not just like a you get out of hell and that's all you need to do. And while that salvation piece is a crucial component to our life and relationship we have in Christ, Christ, Paul calls us to remember just how much more than that it means. We see here with the words that he used, we have a brand new identity. We have all our previous debts or our sin completely forgiven, wiped away. We were desired by God and chosen by him, and he will not let us go. He will not disown us. We have new rights and new responsibilities, and we're, we share jointly in all of that through the Holy Spirit. So when God, or when the scriptures say that we are adopted, we are sons and daughters of God, again, not metaphorically, we have been chosen by God, adopted and brought into his family with all the rights and responsibilities that that carries. Our spirits cry out that God is our Father in heaven, and he has brought us into that family. And it's not just here. We see this repeatedly in the New Testament, right? Paul reminds us this in Galatians chapter 4. He almost uses the exact same language. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And then we see uh, John, the apostle, the disciple that Jesus loved, remind us this also in his letter in 1 John. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it does not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Such a massive deal that God reaches down, that God chooses us to join his family, and because of that, we gain inheritance. And what is that inheritance that we gain? We're talking about inheritance that we gain as members of his kingdom, but what that kingdom of God looks us, we, looks like? We see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Matthew 25, 34, Jesus says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God establishing this kingdom and inheriting this kingdom. We are part of this eternal kingdom. Peter writes about it too. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance 
which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We gain every spiritual blessing. They're eternal and infinitely given to us through Christ and available to us now. And unlike worldly inheritance that we gain or you would gain when somebody else dies, yes, there was Christ's death, but we have that inheritance that we have now as we live. And it's the Holy Spirit, the very spirit of life we've been talking about, the generosity of God we've inherited, the kindness of God to bestow all this on us we've inherited. We will inherit his kingdom and have inherited his kingdom. God's future kingdom has been given to us, but there are some things that we uh, are able to do now with this inheritance. And we gain insight in that by looking at what Jesus said and did in regards to when he talked about the kingdom in the Gospels. First, we say that Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God in Luke chapter 8, verse 1. He says, Soon afterward, he, meaning Jesus, went through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. So we have to remember, as we go through in day in and day out, every single day living just a regular routine of life, that the kingdom of God that we've received is good news, right? It's not a secret to be put away. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something that's a struggle. It's a good news. And there's so much bad news in the world, right? Anyone think that there's bad news in the world? Thank you. Politics, war, financial insecurity, natural disasters, culture, things happening to us, family members, people we don't even know. We just know there's bad news in the world. And it's been that way since the beginning, since the fall, right? Just constantly bad news. But the good news of Jesus brings to a world that's devoid of it hope and goodness in the kingdom of God. Our central fact here we need to remember is the kingdom is good. Christ is good, and he brings hope and redemption to us all. Jesus went out and proclaimed the good news of God's love, of his plan of restoring all of creation. But Jesus just didn't do it by himself, right? He went with others. He brought others with them. He brought his disciples. He brought his followers. We see here in Luke chapter 8, we just read this group of women, and these women were key um, testimonies, key witnesses to the hope that Christ brings. It says specifically that these women had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. They could testify to the goodness of Christ and his kingdom. It wasn't just in the abstract. It was, this is the goodness that God has brought to us. Each of us has our own version of this, our own version of healing. We have our own testimonies and our own stories that add to the glory of God that only we can attest to. Nobody's testimony or story is exactly the same. And just to be clear, a testimony isn't just that God saved you from some kind of major addiction or major lifestyle battle or change or anything like that, and it only counts as a good testimony if there was some massive thing that you overcame in your life or anything like that. Maybe God has done that in your life, and God does do that in people's lives, and those are incredible things to hear and incredible things to remember and to celebrate God for when those massive life things happen and God completely turns your life around 180 degrees, 180 degrees, and you're, working for, you're walking forward in a whole new life with Him. But for a lot of us, maybe your lives have just been pretty good. 
Maybe they've been mostly all right, and you've seen God show up in some big ways in your family, or maybe you've seen God show up in some little ways in your family. Some ways are bigger, some ways are smaller, but we can testify to the transformation that happens in all of our lives because of the work of the Holy Spirit and the goodness of God and how others have served us and how we serve others. And just because you have a boring testimony doesn't mean it's not a testimony. It doesn't mean that it's not worth sharing. And if you're part of community groups here at Sojourn, then you know the meaning of this, right? Because one of the first things you do when you join a community group is the first couple of weeks, people take turns sharing their stories with their groups, right? If you've been part of that, you know it. And you share about just your life and what God has done in your life and how God has shown up in your life. And some of those stories are major things and some are little things. And if you're in my small group, you hear about my great-grandparents from Hungary and how I go on this whole little thing and then they just laugh at me But because it's a long story. But it doesn't have to be some major huge life thing. That's the point I'm getting at. All of us have experienced the goodness of God. All of us have experienced the forgiveness of God. All of us have experienced the glory of God, and all of those stories are unique to us, and we can share that to proclaim the goodness and the good news of the kingdom. We've all been saved from sin and death. That's the unifying factor. That's the major life change. And everything else is just a piece of that story and reflecting how God has revealed and shown up to us through that. Our testimonies on how God has changed our lives is the most important thing we can share with others, both in our words and in our actions. The kingdom of God is tangible and is real and is part of our inheritance. And part of our inheritance is to share that reality with others. Jesus calls us to proclaim the gospel. This doesn't mean everyone find a street corner after church and just stand there and start proclaiming. But we share our stories because of the goodness God has had in our lives. But Jesus doesn't just say proclaim the kingdom, he sends his kingdom as well. And as heirs to his kingdom, we participate in that sending piece as well. And if you're like me, this gets your heart racing and you're like nerves up because you don't want to be sent. You don't want to go and have to talk to people, right? I don't want to go talk to some random stranger at Kroger about Jesus. Kristen talks to everybody. Kristen's best friends with everyone. And sometimes I'm like, well, that's fine. I get the goodness of God through Kristen's work um, in spreading the gospel and being loving and kind, but that also doesn't work. I need to do something too. And so Luke uh, also tells us about this in Luke chapter 10, Christ sends his disciples to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom. And this is what he says in verse 9, one thing specifically in this part of a larger passage, if you want to look at more of Luke chapter 10, it's Jesus sending these 72 witnesses out into the villages around to proclaim the goodness of God and do these miracles in the name of Jesus. It says, verse 9, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. God has given us the authority to go and be the kingdom of God through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of life that we all have. This is one reason why we offer prayer up front every week. It's not just because it's the church thing to do and we should have some people to pray. It's not some performance type thing or something, again, a box to check because a denomination somewhere said this is what you're supposed to do after church. But we believe this deeply that the Spirit of God rests on us. It's part of our inheritance. And all who call the Lord or Christ the Lord have the power and authority been granted to us so that we pray and intervene for one another. 
it's not just a go out thing too, it's a building up the community to one another. We seek prayer because we know we can pray and intervene to one another through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at the great commission that Jesus sends us on also in Matthew. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, meaning Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have this calling to go out and engage society around us to showcase our testimonies, to build relationships, to show the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and transforming our communities with love and action. It's hard work and it takes time and it takes effort on our parts and it fills up our schedules, but this is what Christ has called us to do. Again, like last week, Jesus told his disciples, go to all of Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Not every disciple went to the ends of the earth. Some stayed in Jerusalem, some stayed in Antioch, some stayed in other cities, and some went to the ends of the earth. Some people are called to other places around the world, but we're all called somewhere, even if it's just your neighborhoods. As we grow more and more community groups of our church, our goal with our groups is to go out and engage the city around us engage with our neighbors, engage with our neighborhoods, engage with our friends and our workplaces, and to be a radically different type of people. We talked a little bit about last week how we're called to be so distinct that it's obvious that we follow Jesus. Proverbs 31 is probably best known when you think of Proverbs 31, you think about there's the whole list of an example of what a godly wife is, like that's Proverbs 31. But the first part of Proverbs 31 is also some other things here, and don't miss that first part of Proverbs, like specifically look at verses 8 and 9. It says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of those of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Being sent out of the kingdom of God is not just sharing the ABCs of salvation and then carrying on, right? Again, salvation, crucial. That's what the goal is, right? We want to proclaim the salvation Jesus gives to our lives, but it's more than just that. It's pursuing justice for those who can't advocate for themselves. Uh, Ernie's talking about the quartet of the vulnerable, right? Orphans and widows, children who are in need of adoption or in foster care, the immigrants in our community, those who are financially in dire straits, both people within our church community and outside our church community. Our lives centered on Christ is this proclaiming of the kingdom in every aspect of our lives. We aren't supposed to just sit back as people of God and hope and think that, like, well, the government's going to take care of everything. That's what the government's for. It doesn't matter what the government does. We're called to do something. We're not supposed to just sit back. It's our job as the church to get our hands dirty and get into the world to bring groceries for families at Brumby, to go help at Brumby, go help at Women's First Care Clinic and Table on Delk and all the other things that your communities and in your neighborhoods and our passions and desires that God has given for us. Our loyalty to the kingdom of God is priority over any other loyalty and the kingdom is not of this world. Remember that we don't serve just this world. We don't serve this world. We are part of this kingdom. John 18, 36, Jesus reminds us, and Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of the world. Our kingdom that we're part of is not part of this world. It's not, we have not inherited the kingdoms of the earth. We've inherited the kingdom of heaven. 
So the reality and the social order of this world doesn't matter to us. Whatever the world says is things that are supposed to be, that doesn't matter to us. What does Jesus say the world is supposed to be? We leverage and we use our resources and our time and our energy and all these things to speak for the vulnerable, defend those who are vulnerable. And with all the things swirling around the world, we have to remind ourselves daily that we're citizens of this greater kingdom. It's the good news of the gospel that we are part of something bigger than ourselves, that's more than this world, that's more than our time here on this world. And that the goals of the kingdom don't always line up and mostly don't line up with the goals of the kingdoms of earth. It doesn't line up with our jobs necessarily. It doesn't line up with what is a priority in the global world. And it's so hard to remember this where we live because we're so blessed and we're so distracted sometimes and life can be truly enjoyable. Like, it's okay to have an enjoyable life. Like, don't hear me say, like, you got to be miserable because you got to get in the trenches and just trug away. It's fine to be enjoyable. God has given us life. It's fine to love your family and take vacations and do fun things and all that stuff, but we can't forget why we gather as people of God. We gather to be encouraged with each other. We gather to take communion, to worship together, to be reminded of the Word of God, and then to go out and, filled with the Spirit of life, change our communities for the better, one person or one family or one group of people at a time. And then Paul concludes this section in Romans 8 with these last two verses. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may glorify with him. And what Paul's reminding us is that our life is not easy as Christians, right? The Christian life is never promised to be easy. It's going to be suffering, and it can be suffering in little ways, it can be suffering in big ways, but the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous, Scripture says, and there's just suffering that comes with following Jesus, could be a certain way people talk to us about our faith, could be called intolerant or bigoted because of the biblical truths that we hold fast to. It could be relationships that suffer. It could be so many different things because we hold fast to the truth of Jesus and the inheritance that we have in the kingdom of God. But remember that we are not of this world. We do not claim citizenship here on earth with the nations that are here. We do not live and die by the nations of the earth, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are citizens and co-inheritors of the kingdom of God. We know that life is not designed to be easy and relaxed all the time. It's not designed for us to not have concerns or issues and stress. And sometimes social media and the world just makes you think like, well, if I'm struggling, then my life's not the way it's supposed to be and I need to work out more or I need to get a promotion or I need to do this or that or the other thing. But again, we hold fast to the truth of our inheritance. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Remember that you are adopted into God's family. He has chosen you because He desires you, He loves you, and He's giving you His inheritance. And what I don't mean is like, well, that's good, so just suck it up and deal with it. That's not what I'm saying. It's like, oh, well, well you're children of God, so don't struggle. Or don't be upset or don't be bummed out or don't, you know, be stressed or whatever, but rather live in a way where we are consistently and constantly reminding ourselves and from those around us of the blessings that we have through the spirit of life. 
how the God and creator of the entire universe and all of history and sustainer of all things has brought us into his family permanently, that we have glory waiting for us one day, and that we have the inheritance of the one true God. I think about my, my oldest daughter, Evie, she runs cross country, and at the end of that race, every time she runs way more miles than I think any human should, um, she's exhausted, but she ran a good race. She's very good at what she does. She's run a good race, and every kid who runs those races, they are exhausted at the end of it, but they did what they were supposed to. They ran through mud puddles and up hills and over rocks and tree limbs and all this kind of stuff, and they suffered through their race. It's not a great analogy, but it's the best one I had. And so we run this race, Paul says, and it's a marathon, not a sprint. And by the end of it, we're probably going to be exhausted. But we cross that finish line and who waits for us? And it's Jesus. And it might be when you're 99, it might be when you're 29, it might be who knows when you're called home. But at the end of that race, you're going to be tired. But at the end of that race, you remember that your inheritance in the kingdom of God is waiting for you. And as a community, as a people, as a church, not just community groups, but our church as a whole, the reason things like all church dinner and community groups are so vital is because we come together as a people who are on the same page with one another, who understand that we're sons and daughters of God, who understand that we have gained an inheritance in Christ, and we pray for one another, and we encourage each other, and we lift each other up through those difficult times. Because there's going to be some times where I'm struggling really hard and you're not, or you're struggling really hard and I'm not, and as a people, we come come together, we pray, and we take communion, and we spend time with one another to refresh and encourage and remind ourselves of the glory that's waiting for us. And how we as brothers and sisters, again, not just because it's nice language to use to get us a concept of, you know, kind of our relationship, but we have all been adopted into the same family. As we look around this room, we are siblings in the Lord. And maybe you had a great relationship with your siblings, maybe you had a bad relationship with your siblings if you had any, I don't know what your story is, but the, the image of siblings here, of co-inheritors that God gives us, are ones where we are doing the work together and being there for one another. It's easy to lose hope and forget who we are or who we belong to, but we need to hold fast with the spirit of life within us and with the people around us. We are heirs to the kingdom, and the day is coming when Christ will return and we'll be home in the kingdom forever. So rally around one another. Join community groups. Come to church dinners. Come to mom's playtime on the green. Come to anything we can. Again, is it going to fill up your schedule? Yeah, it's going to fill up our schedule because it takes work and dedication. But at the end, what are we? We're brothers and sisters in Christ coming together with one another to be refreshed and encouraged so that when we go into the world, we have that, those people, all of us, behind our backs, knowing that we're doing the work of the kingdom. And then when we come together on Sundays or Wednesdays or whatever days you do, you have those people you can share your victories in, share your defeats on, pray for one another, encourage, lift each other up, share a meal, and then continue the work of Jesus, knowing that you're not alone. We have our Father in heaven, and we know we have the Holy Spirit, but sometimes that can feel disconnected like it's an ethereal kind of thing, the Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit lives in us. We know the Holy Spirit's real. We know Jesus is real. But sometimes, if you're like me, you can feel, disconnected may not be the right word, but it feels it's out there, the Holy Spirit out there. Like, I know I have the Holy Spirit, but it's out there. 
But when I show up Tuesday nights to community group and I see all these different families surrounding us and we're praying for one another and we're crying with one another or we're laughing with one another, I'm not going to say it, Christina, raccoons. We'll talk about raccoons with one another, inside joke. But we say all these kind of things, we're doing life together. It's for a purpose more than just do it because the church says this is what you're supposed to do. Remind Remind yourselves of the reality of the kingdom that we're a part of and why we do things together. If you're not in the community group, I encourage you highly when we start up in the fall, please join one. Come to the church dinner, do all these things. If you're part or lead one, sorry, I messed up there. If you're part of a community group or you lead a community group, lead with prayer and community support. Share your resources, your time and your money with one another and with those around you. We can bear one another's burdens when times are hard. And when we are suffering, because we are all going to cross that finish line together, yes, at different times, or we'll be here when Christ returns, whoever knows when that will be, but we're going to be there for each other. We're going to cross the finish line and see the saints that have come before us, our brothers and sisters who have come before us, cheering us on and encouraging us. Participate in the kingdom of God. Live in the inheritance that God has given you. Be encouraged by the inheritance God has given you and the spirit of life that lives within you. Remember what your inheritance is. Find hope in your family of, of Christ, your church community and your church family. Rally around one another. Do the work of the kingdom. We will be tired, but we can lift one another up. We have the Holy Spirit to rely on. We have one another to rely on, and we are going to cross that finish line together. Amen. Let's pray, and we'll take communion together. Dear Jesus, we thank you for the inheritance that you've given us, Lord God. We thank you that you have chosen us, that you have adopted us into your family. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your inheritance now, for filling us with your spirit of life. We pray, Lord God, that as we leave this building, as we go through day in and day out, as we go through Fourth of July, as we travel, as we get ready for the school year to start sooner than we want it to, We just pray that we rest in you, Lord. We rest in community. We lift each other up, Lord God. I pray that you make our hearts want and crave that community with one another, Lord God, to bear each other's burdens, to go out, to proclaim the kingdom, to be sent uh, from you into the, using our inheritance of the kingdom to proclaim and share the kingdom around, Lord God. Let us be energized and encouraged weekly, Lord. Thank you for your death and your sacrifice and your love for us and making that possible. In your name we pray, amen.